America Dissected is brought to you by the De Beaumont Foundation. Calling all rising leaders in public health. Nominations for the De Beaumont Foundation's 40 Under 40 in public health are due May 17th. 40 Under 40 honorees are service-oriented, equity-focused leaders who bring passion and an entrepreneurial spirit to their work. In addition to national-level recognition, honorees get access to a two-year professional development program, networking with peers and luminaries, and virtual and in-person learning opportunities every quarter. To learn more and to nominate yourself or someone else, visit DeBeaumont.org. The FDA approves an RSV vaccine. The WHO officially ended the COVID global health emergency as the U.S. public health emergency expires this week. A new CDC report shows that overdose deaths among black folks skyrocketed in 2020, driven largely by fentanyl. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Friends, before we get started, a quick call. If you're graduating from a public health program this year, we want to hear from you. We're putting together an episode about the future of public health. And you, well, you're that future. If you're graduating in 2023 and want to talk, send us an email at americadissected at crooked.com. That's americadissected at crooked.com. And our producers will be in touch. Now on to the show. Today, we're talking about menopause and the general disservice wrought upon people who are going through it by a scientific establishment that fundamentally discounts the suffering that comes with the experience. If you haven't caught on by now, there are a lot of ways that our healthcare system discounts the experiences of women. We talked a few weeks back about the differential experience of puberty, particularly early puberty, and the ways that our silence on the matter has done way more harm than good. We've talked about our failure to take the experience of birth seriously, particularly among black women. We've talked about the ways that society has full-on discounted the dangers of pregnancy and dismissed the many other reasons women seek abortions. So much so that national policy favors allowing people to force it on you which 24 states have now gone ahead and done. Now, look, I don't think I need to put my cards on the table on this one, but menopause, it's not something I've had to think much about. I'm a 38-year-old cis man. I'm never going to face menopause. And while plenty of women I know and love have experienced it, the script they've been taught discounts their pain and discomfort as something to suffer silently, and certainly not to speak to a young man about. Of course, menopause was part of my medical school curriculum, But like most things we talk about in medical school, it was sterilized into science speak, as if the physiological phenomenon was all I needed to know about. Ovaries run out of ova and and with them stop producing the monthly pulses of estrogen and progesterone that animate the ovulatory cycle. Never mind the ways that estrogen withdrawal leads to a host of painful symptoms, from hot flashes to pain with sex to dry skin. And we absolutely did not talk about the ways that the constellation of symptoms experienced and the parts of the bodies they affected targeted the fundamental way someone perceives a core part of their identity. Nope, none of that. But we did talk about the Women's Health Initiative. It's a landmark study that fundamentally altered the course of menopause treatment in the early aughts. There was a before Women's Health Initiative. Menopause symptoms were treated with hormone replacement therapy. This should make sense. Menopause symptoms, well, they stem from the body's abrupt ceasing to produce the hormones estrogen and progesterone. Simply replacing it, well, it allays those symptoms. And then there was a after women's health initiative. See, in this study, researchers thought that the hormone replacement therapy would have secondary benefits, particularly around preventing heart disease too. So they embarked on the largest known study of its kind, enrolling 160,000 women to test that hypothesis. But then one of the key arms of the study was abruptly halted. Women should not start or continue this therapy to prevent heart disease. The findings show it doesn't work. In fact, the therapy increases the risk 
for a heart attack or stroke. It was the shot heard around the world. Researchers found that estrogen and progesterone therapy increased the risk of a number of maladies, including stroke and breast cancer. For example, hormone replacement therapy increased breast cancer risk by 26%. But a note here, those numbers can be tricky. See, the baseline risk of breast cancer between 50 and 60 is about 2.33%. That means 2.33% of women in that age group will develop breast cancer. So when we say that number increased by 26%, it means that that baseline risk, it jumped from 2.33% to 2.94%. So out of 10,000 women, the number of cancer cases would go from 233 to 294, an increase of 61 cases in 10,000. But that was enough to have them cancel the study altogether and warn the world. Now, look, I'm not discounting those 61 cases, but I am saying that 61 in 10,000 may force us to think about, well, all the costs of untreated menopause. See, a recent study from the Mayo Clinic of more than 4,000 women in four states found that the symptoms of menopause cost nearly $1.8 billion. Yes, billion with a B, dollars. Through missed workdays, cutbacks in hours, or frank resignations, or worse, layoffs. And that doesn't even include the pain, discomfort, and dysfunction of the symptoms of the people experiencing them. Since the Women's Health Initiative, hormone replacement therapy has been reserved for only the most extreme symptoms. And folks have been told that menopause is just a part of life, that they just need to grit and bear it, like childbirth or menses, early puberty, and all the other things women go through and are routinely told to ignore. See, as a man, I would have gone on ignoring menopause if it weren't for a breakthrough article in the New York Times Magazine written by our guest today, Susan Dominus, in which she goes back to the moment our understanding of menopause flipped and asks why. I wanted to have her on the show to dig in. Here's my conversation with Susan Dominus. Can you introduce yourself for the tape? Sure. My name is Susan Dominus, and I'm a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. Susan, I really appreciate you making the time to chat with us today. You wrote a a fantastic article, a really important article uh, for the Times Magazine about menopause. And um, this is an experience in life that upwards of 50%, if not more than 50% of people uh, are on pace to have or have had. And um, I'm not one of those 50%. And so I, I'll be honest with you, before I read the article, my understanding of menopause and menopausal treatment was what came out of um, the w- women's health study. And um, and you write very movingly and convincingly about how um, this represents a sort of failure to take into account or to fully uh, account for the, the full lived experience of menopause. I want to ask you, stepping back, you know, you talk about it a little bit in the article, but what led you to, to write about this or to take it up as a reporting project? Um, I actually love this question because it's not what you'd think. Um, my uh, male editor-in-chief, Jake Silverstein, thought it was an important topic. And I love uh, and respect the fact that, that was this was his idea. He brought the idea to me right around the same time that I went away for a small reunion with some of my closest women friends from college. And if we were away for, you know, four days, I feel like all told we spent like 20% of the whole trip just talking about menopause because mm. each of us was having some interesting or troubling um, or really upsetting experience of it. It was a spectrum, but everybody wanted to talk about it and everybody was baffled by how little we knew. We didn't even know, you know, what is the difference between perimenopause and menopause? And are we in it? And do you have symptoms before you're actually in menopause? And 
how do you treat them and why isn't there more and is it safe to to treat menopausal symptoms and you know we were pretty um well well educated well resourced women and we were baffled and um, I was sort of hesitating. I wasn't sure. It seemed like a very big topic to take on. I ended up focusing a lot on um, menopausal hormone therapy. But my friends really felt like this is such an important topic and that there is a stigma attached and people need to write about it to reduce the stigma. I, I can't imagine the experience of living your life and you're in your uh, early 50s and then all of a sudden your hormones just completely go out of rhythm. And this causes all kinds of disturbances, a set of symptoms that um, you don't see coming that are not quite the same for everyone experiencing them and don't have a defined endpoint. And it's like, it's almost like you, you end up having this sort of new onset chronic disease that everyone just says is normal, right? Yeah, what is that experience like? Uh, well, first of all, I do feel it's important to say that not all women do experience menopause or the menopausal transition as um, a real hardship. You know, there is some percentage of women who who take it um, very easily. Uh, those women, are, I think, are in fact in the minority. But um, you know, I think it's a little bit of the frog in boiling water syndrome um, combined with uh, women's. Um, sense that they're not really supposed to complain anyway. You know, it's sort of gradual and, you know, you start waking up in the middle of the night and, you know, you're you're sweaty and you're hot and, you know, you think like, okay, I, I guess I'll open the window now or I'll try to take a nap, you know, during the day or, um, and then, you know, it's very hard to know, okay, well, I'm feeling these things, but are these things that are happening because I'm going through menopause or is it just that I'm stressed or, is it that I can't remember anything anymore because I'm not sleeping well? And am I not sleeping well because I'm worrying about my kids, I'm worrying about my parents, I've got so much on my mind? Or is it menopause? Is it hormones? You don't really know. And no one's really talking about it. Nobody's telling you there's anything you can do about it. And so you just kind of deal with it. It is also an, an intense moment because... I think when you realize you're going through menopause, like every time you have a hot flash, frankly, you're kind of reckoning with the inexorability of, of mortality. I mean, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that that's part of it, or at least you're being confronted by your own aging. And um, for some women, even more than that, I think a sense of like, not universally, but I think for some women, it can be interpreted as a, there can be a fear of losing one's femininity, one's womanhood. It's it, And there are a lot of things going on in the lives of women who are in their 50s who are, you know, maybe they're in the prime of their careers. Maybe they have children. Maybe they have older parents they're dealing with. You know, everybody is facing a lot of uh, existential stress right now. So I think I think it's, it is it is an unfortunate um, time in your life to be hit with a new set of symptoms. You know, for some women, it's even joint pain. Like mm -hmm. you want to exercise, you want to feel fit. But if everything creaks and aches all of the sudden, you know, that can be it can be um, a hindrance for sure mm. to your feeling like your best self, right? When you need to be your best self, right? You 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 mentioned something that I really appreciate and I want to pull on a little bit, which is that, you know, women are expected to experience things and not complain about them. And we just did a recent episode about early puberty uh, in girls and you know, we, we were talking about the experience of going through puberty and the way that that gets stigmatized. And the fact that we 
we do not have or the conversation that we do have, if we have one, doesn't necessarily empower um, the folks who are experiencing this. It is sort of a conversation had um, quietly between people so as not to interrupt all the folks who are not going through this. Like that's kind of the nature of the conversation. And I, I just feel like this, there's so many parallels and they all sort of point back to, you know, gender norms and assumption about gender norms. Um, to, to what do you degree do you feel like the failure to have taken the question of menopause as seriously as we ought to, given how many people this affects, how profoundly is centered in a ongoing, um, you know, frankly, misogynistic approach to the way that we think about women's health. You know, there's a, there's a quote that I think about a lot in the article from a woman named Rebecca Thurston, who's done a lot of really important and groundbreaking research on menopause and menopausal symptoms. And, you know, she basically believes that menopause and the lack of um, more treatments and the lack of more discussion about it represents one of the great blind spots of medicine. Mm. And I asked her, you know, what she made of that. And she said, I think that it suggests that we have a high tolerance for women's suffering and especially probably older women suffering, which is a way of saying that they are, um, you know, not as highly valued as they should be in a society. And disposable. Yeah, disposable, invisible. Um, you know, the other thing I will say in defense of the, you know, the research industrial complex is that, you know, menopause, it, it affects your quality of life, but it's the rare thing that affects your quality of life that actually doesn't really um, endanger you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's, it's you're not going to die of menopause. You're going to die of something, but it's unlikely to be I mean, it is true that you have higher, you know, it's possible that if you have good menopausal care, you are less likely, for example, to get a fracture. And like, that's really important. Um, but but otherwise, it's not a fatal disease. It's just a quality of life issue. Hot flashes, you know, there is some research that suggests there's an association between more than four hot flashes a day and high rates of cardiovascular disease. But it's unclear whether the hot flashes are causing that or whether they're just... Um, a reflection of the fact that there is cardiovascular disease. But for the most part, the hot flashes don't, we don't think that they do any damage, right? They're not dangerous. They're just really, really uncomfortable and disruptive. So I think that that is a less compelling, um, ex, you know, symptom for um, doctors or researchers to like, you know, throw money at. But but he, he, here's where I'm going to, I'm going to push back and, and, you know, I'm not one to defend uh, medical industry or the research industrial complex, uh, having been a part of, of both of them. Um, I think about how much money is made treating erectile dysfunction. Yes, correct. Which, you know, if you if you think about it, this is sort of the male analog, which is not nearly as painful, right? Yes. It's just it's just not it's it's the lack of pleasure. It's not the the presence of pain. Correct. And we spend huge amounts of money on um on both researching and treating erectile dysfunction because there's a market for it, but also because it affects men. And a lot of the folks who've been in positions of power identify this as this is a serious problem that we both can monetize, but also that we can treat the higher angels of our nature. We can take care of some people here who are experiencing this awful thing. Um, and we just haven't done that with menopause. And I'll be honest with you, like, you know, as, as when we were talking about the, about puberty a couple weeks back, the same parallel sort of came up. Our, our experience for the most part of, um, of puberty as, as males doesn't involve one day as a child bleeding from your genitalia. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, yeah, it's uh, really interesting. And we don't, we don't, you know, require products. And the fact that we don't offer products universally, right, I think is a function of the fact that it was always expected that uh, women and girls would go on and take care of that situation without without making a fuss about it for everybody else. Whereas, you know, th- these these challenges, both at the beginning uh, of our um, uh, pubescent period and and then at, toward the end of our um, of our of our sexual lives, we'll call it. Um, you know, anytime there is uh, there's the risk of a male being nonplussed. Um, there is a ready response from the medical industry, um, and when it comes to women and girls, where that involves pain and discomfort, um, and sometimes loss of function, we just don't do anything about it, right? I mean, you sort of the simple way I think about health is is it does one of three things: it either causes you pain or discomfort, it it takes away your function, or it has the potential to shorten your life. Um, and and in menopause, ticks two of the three, and um, you know erectile dysfunction only ticks one. Yeah. I think the difference there between um, helping um, men with their sexual pleasure and, and ignoring the actual pain that women experience during sex, just as you say, when they have what's now, what's now called genitourinary syndrome, which is, um, you know, a series of changes to women's, you know, frankly, their genitourinary system um, that happens to, you know, happens to 50% of women. They experience some sort of dryness or thinning of the vaginal walls or discomfort during sex, you know, pain, burning, itching. Um, you know, increase in urinary tract infections. <laughs> I mean, it affects fifty percent of women, and as they as they go, th- you know, after they go through menopause, and reluctance to really talk about it more openly and aggressively, even in doctors' offices, has to do with a deep discomfort with the sexuality of older women. I mean, it's not just mm. that it's not a crisis that women who are in their 60s, you know, might be um, having painful sex. But it's like the idea that they would even want to be having sex, I think, is an uncomfortable idea for many people. I mean, I think there's mm. not, there's this whole brand of humor around how, you know, um, appalling it would be for a younger man to have sex with an older woman. You know, there's a real almost like visceral revulsion that people have around that idea. It's a trope that you certainly see in comedy. And um, and I think it reflects a, a larger um, societal discomfort with the, with the very idea of a woman's sexual value um, once she is of a certain age. <laughs> we'll be back with more with Susan Dominus after this break. We're all painfully aware of the attacks against black studies happening across the country. In the 2020 to 2021 school year alone, more than a third of elementary and high school students lived in a district that suffered a campaign to ban a quote-unquote critical race theory. These efforts happen because the people in power know that black studies fuels action that can shift the balance of power. And that's why podcast sponsor Marguerite Casey Foundation is excited to help get black studies into as many hands as possible. They're supporting Kaepernick Publishing and Haymarket Books in a joint effort that will be released this month. Edited by Robin D.G. Kelly, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, and Colin Kaepernick, our history has always been contraband in defense of black studies. will be available for download as a free ebook in late May. America Dissected is brought to you by Bookshop.org. Understanding people is one of the most important parts of my job. And so I'm reading a book called Surrounded by Idiots. Now look, I'm not a big fan of pop psych books, but it's always helpful to get your mind around different ways to understand people. And the book by Thomas Erickson, well, it gives you a different way to understand how different people tick. Whether you're searching for a buzzy new memoir, riveting true crime, or a fantasy novel that sweeps you away, Bookshop.org has just the book you're looking for. Their online bookstore is stocked with compelling titles that will keep you entertained for hours. 
From Mary Roach's Stiff to Spare Parts by Paul Craddock. There's something for everyone. Book recommendations on bookshop.org also come from real people who love books, not algorithms. And the best part, when you purchase from bookshop.org, you're supporting local independent bookstores so they'll be around for all of us to enjoy into the future. Bookshop.org has raised over $25 million for local bookstores. They're unapologetically anti-Amazon and believe local bookstores are essential community hubs that foster culture, curiosity, and a love of reading. Join them in helping local bookstores survive and thrive. Use code AD to get 10% off your next order at bookshop.org. That's code AD at checkout for 10% off your next order. You know, we talked about puberty and we're talking about menopause. We have a three-month-old at home and and having just uh, watched my spouse go through a second pregnancy, I mean, we don't even, we don't even talk about that, right? Um, and it, it's just, it's, it's at every level of a life course where the pain, the frustration, um, the discomfort of women is taken for granted. And, you know, obviously there's, there's a whole field of women's health and yet it's been underfunded, under-resourced. Um, we don't have a, a big, broad public conversation about it. So, uh, it, you know, it's, and, and as, as someone who's, I've never, I've never had to deal with these things, but as someone who, who thinks a lot about um, these questions of what do we choose to treat and what don't we choose to treat, it's, it's rather astounding to me um, that the, the sort of biases, the, the, the structural bias of the past, we've just sort of carried forward in terms of what we choose to invest in and what we choose not to. Um, I, I want to jump now just to the sort of state of, of medical management of, um, of menopause and can you can you walk us through how menopause was managed before the Women's Heart Initiative study? So for for many years leading up to 2002, when the National Institutes of Health launched the Women's Health Initiative, um, hormones were actually prescribed pretty readily um, to women who have a uterus. They were given um, estrogen and progesterone. The progesterone is basically to counteract the increased risk of endometrial cancer. For women who don't have a uterus, they were readily given. Um, estrogen alone. And there was the thinking that it was going to um, be great that these hormones, that estrogen would be great for preventative care for heart disease and cardiovascular disease. Um, and it was, you know, one of the most commonly prescribed medications um, that there was. And doctors also did regularly prescribe it um, to much older women, which is now something that I think with good reason doctors do still do, but with more caution. Just, you know, for context for folks, the a lot of the experience of menopause from a, from a physiological standpoint is estrogen withdrawal, whether it is the genitourinary symptoms, whether it is the hot flashes, it's all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the production of estrogen in the ovaries um, happens uh, with the production or the maturation of uh, ova. And when that stops, right, a lot of that estrogen production goes away. And so it makes sense that the treatment would be um, to continue to give somebody the hormones that their body is no longer making. Um, because and, there's estrogen receptors in so many parts of the body, right? Like your skin, your hair, your brain. Yeah, exactly. Your breasts, yeah. And, um, you know, that that sort of change in estrogen is also what explains a lot of the experience of pregnancy, right? Is that you, you all of a sudden estrogen levels go sky high. Um, and 
Uh, and it's, it's a lot of the same sort of parts of the body that are targeted. And when you have a regular dosing, that's, that's what um, maintains and sustains the physiological aspects that we um, tend to tie to feminine bodies, right? That, that's, that's what does that. And when that starts to go away, the experience is extremely uncomfortable, and, um, and and that's what sort of explains menopause. And so we used to treat that. that we used to treat with, with hormones until this 2002 study. And I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what the study did and maybe, maybe not just what the study did, but also how the study landed. Well, the study was intended to see if indeed um, hormone therapy did improve women's cardiovascular health. The question was, would it be good to use hormones for preventive care? And it was so commonly believed that um, estrogen would be great for cardiovascular health for women of any age and any heart condition that one doctor I interviewed for this piece told me that she used to have a slide that she would give in presentations that said estrogen should be like fluoride. It should be in the water. That's, mm. how, that's what a cure-all people thought it was going to be. So the um, National Institutes of Health launched this um, major randomized controlled trial. It's still to date the largest randomized controlled trial of um, women only that has been conducted. And contrary to the idea that um, it was going to lower the risk of cardiovascular disease, it actually found increased incidence of um, coronary heart disease, of um, strokes, of clots. And um, this was this was in the estrogen and progesterone group, the women who still have uteruses. Um, and that was really shocking to the researchers. Um, they also saw increased incidence of breast cancer. Um, and basically, they did something that was pretty unusual. That was pretty unusual is they called a huge press conference um, where they announced that they were bringing the um, the estrogen and progesterone arm of this of this trial to a crashing halt because it was deemed to be you know they had they had passed a threshold of risk that was unacceptable for a trial and even though they emphasized in this press conference that the risk to each individual woman was extremely small that it was sort of an epidemiological um, you know that you would see these numbers across the population but for the individual woman it was going to be a really small risk they emphasized that but all anybody really heard is we're stopping the trial. And I think it's pretty clear that people thought, how people interpreted that news was they stopped the trial because hormones are dangerous to women. Mm. Um, now, the threshold of risk that a, you know, a trial can tolerate is much lower than an individual might decide is okay for her. And also, you know, the, the trial wasn't... Um, it wasn't factoring in quality of life issues for women. So the doctor who held the press conference actually said, we have found that the risks outweigh the benefits. What he meant was we found the medical risks outweigh the medical benefits. But that's not the same thing as saying these risks outweigh whatever lifestyle or risks exist in having hot flashes five times a night. So um, it wasn't measuring quality of life. It wasn't measuring... Um, anyway, so the researchers went on the talk shows and they gave all these interviews and, you know, they they rattled off all these statistics that sounded really alarming. Good God, you know, after five years, we saw a 26% increased risk in women. Um now, they didn't break it down by age. Um, and, you know, if you're in your 50s, you know, your your breast cancer risk is actually quite low. It's something like 2.1% risk. It might be a little higher than that. I'm not sure I'm getting the number exactly right. But, you know, 26% 
um, on top of a, of a risk that low is 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 really quite small. You're still not going to get to three percent even, you know. So, but those it wasn't presented that way. It was just I think a lot of women here. Oh my God, I have a twenty six percent increased risk of breast cancer. You know, I imagine many women heard that as you have a twenty six percent increased, you know, risk of breast cancer, mm-hmm. or maybe your risk is twenty six times higher. I think people just don't know how to interpret those statistics. But if you don't know what the base number is, then you don't know how to factor in what that 26% increase really is. So the risk yeah. was still super duper low for women in their 50s. Now, you know, by the way, totally reasonable to decide. One of the other ways that people describe it, it's like for every 10,000 women who take hormones, an additional um, eight would have um, would have breast cancer. Now, you can listen to that statistic and think like eight, you know, 10,000. Yeah, that's not for me. That's too high. I respect that. But I just don't think that most women heard it that way. And I think many w- women, if they did understand it that way, would um, be perfectly comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate you walking us through all of the ways that that study got interpreted um, because it highlights a couple of cardinal uh, issues with the way science is done and communicated. The first is that you know, scientists love to talk about themselves as if they're super unbiased or we are super unbiased. And the problem is, is that this study was designed expecting or testing the opposite hypothesis to the one that it identified, which for that reason, it created a level of alarm that probably was not justified by the data simply because it was contrary to the hypothesis, right? And to illustrate, again, the, 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 the contrast here, men on average die about two years earlier than women do we have higher rates of cardiovascular disease, which largely accounts for that difference. Increasingly now, um, you're seeing suicidality and uh, drug overdose account for some of that difference. But, right, that is because men don't go through a thing called menopause. So testosterone on its own likely accounts, right, for a big part of the difference. And testosterone, estrogen, if you look at them chemically, are really, really quite similar. Obviously, they do what we consider the opposite thing, but both of them are uh, what we call steroid hormones. And whenever you hear steroid, um, think cholesterol, right? That's the S-T-E-R. That's the same root. Um, and so our body's just sort of, you know, it's a small little difference. Um, and we all have receptors for both of them. But their impact in the rest of our tissue, independent of, you know, the the, the tissue that are primed to look for testosterone or, uh, or, or uh, estrogen, the impact on our tissue is probably quite similar. But we don't have a, a, a menopause, and so we're dosed on steroid hormone, right, for much longer in our lives, right, particularly uh, after the age of 50. And so, you know, if you think about it, you step back and, and you think about the, the um, hypothesis that was being tested, right, if you, if you sort of thought about this for a second, you say, well, if you were in a situation where you really wanted to test the endpoint of cardiovascular disease, and that's all you cared about, you might propose testosterone blockers in men. Hmm, that's really interesting. But nobody would ever, right, say, yeah, yeah, that's definitely worth it. You're like, well, it's a two-year life expectancy increase, right? Yeah. And nobody would ever say, yep, that's that's definitely worth doing. Well, because so, it's so interventional also, right? I mean. Th- that's right. So it shows us how biased we are to what's, quote, normal or natural, A, and B, that we're not very good at thinking about the difference between the endpoint that we're measuring and what we think holistically about a person's experience, mm, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, like, if you could, if you could give somebody a a, a 
um, a, a hormone blocker and say, this is going to give you, increase your life expectancy two years. Because you're right, it would be an intervention. Nobody would propose it. And very, very few men over the age of 50, I know, would be like, yeah, that's that's worth it, right? No, definitely um, not. Yeah, so it, it just shows you how like we got the, we were so biased or scientists, the scientists who did the study were so biased by what their hypothesis had been going in and by the fact that uh, they were laser focused on their endpoint that they forgot to ask bigger picture questions. So they failed to contextualize their findings within the broader question of, all right, what does this mean for women on the study? And then they let their alarm take over, right? You don't usually ha hear press conferences about the outcomes of studies. But they let their alarm take over almost, you know, as a self-protection mechanism, um, which is fundamentally about bias. Like alarm is not a thing scientists usually think about. It's, you know, we, we, we pride ourselves in being calm, cool, collected uh, observers of the evidence. But that clearly isn't what happened here. Well, it's just very strange just because they could do the math. I mean, they, they even did do the math, you know, and talked about it in the um in the press conference, I will say, I think some of the hype had to do with the press. Um, I think uh, also so many women were fearful based on what they were hearing about how it was being presented in the press, that they were coming to their doctors in a panic. Um, one doctor said to me that doctors were so, as you say, sort of stricken by having been proven wrong that they felt, they some of them felt guilty that they had mm -hmm. been prescribing it, you know, all across the board, including to older women. And so they couldn't kind of deal with it. And they just stopped cold turkey prescribing it because it, it was almost as if they were overcompensating for whatever they had done before. But like, you know, again, 26% increased risk of breast cancer. It's not nothing, but it's, you know, I think for, you know, many people take all kinds of medications that entail that kind of elevated risk for various um, bad outcomes because they know it will offset some serious lifestyle impairing symptoms. So right. it is it is really, I think you're right, there was a huge psychological component to the way the trial uh, trials findings were announced and to the way that doctors responded, and certainly to the way that women responded. I think women were sort of almost primed to think that, like, surely this is too good to be true. Like, really, I can just take hormones and it'll, you know, it'll offset so many of the symptoms of aging and menopause that, you know, plagued women's for, you know, generations before me. Maybe it just seems, maybe it just seems, quote unquote, unnatural. To, you know, I still have friends who had unbelievably um, terrible uh, perimenopause and menopause, just terrible sleep problems, terrible hot flashes, real, like real misery. And, and we would talk about menopausal hormone therapy and, you know, some people just want their lives to be very natural. You know, they, they, they just, that's, they, there's a, they valorize that, I guess they privilege that mm. and you can't persuade them otherwise. But I, I, I think you're right that the, um, there was an irrationality that took over and an infantilizing that came of it. In other words, women weren't even really given the choice to think about about the risks and whether they um, were willing to take them to stop suffering. I mean, I think there is a um, a fundamental paternalism uh, in medicine where what you know what doctor says goes, and this has been lorded over women in particular to great detriment when. I hear about the ways that uh, that that childbirth and pregnancy were treated back in the day, back when OB/GYNs were 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 mainly male. I mean, it was sort of a we're going to do this thing to your body because all your body is is a vessel for this infant, and you're just going to take it and not not second guess anything we say or do. Um, and I think some of you know part of it is also if you if you think through the generational 
impact. This study came out in 2002. It affected people who are over the age of 50 by definition. So you're talking about people who were born in 1950 who are probably young women in the 60s, 70s, 80s, right? And so I, I do think there was a generational or like a, a cohort effect there um, that, you know, there was a culture of like what doctor says goes and you're going to listen. And if, if you dare step up and, and second guess what we're saying, right, who are you to, to, to ask us? uh, the, the, these questions. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and I think the press decidedly, I was, I was going back and preparing for this, watching some of the, the coverage and it just was, it was, I mean, it was so profoundly alarmist. The other thing I wanted to tease out there is the lies that can be told by way of relative risk communication. What I mean by that, when you say this increased the probability of X threefold. And you're like, okay, it went from one case in, in 10,000 to three cases in 10,000. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's not that you're lying per se, but you are using the way you communicate that number to aggrandize an effect that's not very grand, right? And in that respect, it is, um, it is, it is attaching an emotion that's not necessarily deserved. It, right. It's something that journalists lean on also, I think, by the way, when they're trying to bolster an argument, uh, they won't stop and break down that that absolute number and the, you know, the absolute risk and the way that's really helpful. And that was definitely a huge part of the phenomenon here. You know, they also just didn't emphasize the good news when it came. So they did find a 26 percent you know, reduction in fractures. That was, what you know, when the WHI 2002 findings were released. That didn't really get a lot of attention. Um, basically, they you know they eventually found that being on menopausal hormone therapy if you start it young enough really reduces your risk of diabetes. Um, and then they found that for women who were on estrogen alone, the women who didn't have uteruses, they kept going with that arm of the study. And when they finally concluded that arm of the study after eight and a half years or so, what they found was that the women who were on estrogen alone had lower rates of breast cancer. Mm. So this is like, I mean, it's, you know, it's not easy to lower rates of breast cancer. No. Um, and yet it got very little attention. It was very little known. And uh, it, it, there wasn't a press conference held to tell women, like, we have good news for you. If you are one of the 30% of women who've had a hysterectomy before the age of 60, which is, you know, an incredible number, but it, it speaks to how much of the menopausal population does not have a uterus um, great news. We can lower your risk of breast cancer. You know, you can go on menopausal hormone therapy. And, um, you know, those things, that, that stuff, somehow the good news that came out over the years never really garnered the same amount of attention. And there's also research to suggest that, you know, one, one of the things that really alarmed people was this increased incidence of cardiovascular disease. You know, there has been research since to suggest that if you take hormones between the age of 50 and 60, um, that it actually reduces the kind of the markers for cardiovascular disease. You know, when they examine women's mm. arteries, that they see healthier looking, um, you know, less plaque and healthier vascular systems. So um, none of this, uh, this, this, these distinctions, you know, it's much more... Uh, safe to take hormones between the age of 50 and 60 because your baseline risk is lower. So whatever incidence risk you have, uh, increased percentage risk is much lower. But also there's some thought that if you start the, the hormones as you're going through perimenopause or soon after your menopausal, it's much better for your system than if your system, your body starts to go through all these changes. It's, it's made some changes and now you introduce hormones, you know, 10 years out that is thought to not necessarily be um, as safe as starting when you're young. Yeah. Um, sort of the difference between bridging versus stopping and restarting, 
Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. We'll be back with more with Susan Dominus after this break. America Dissected is brought to you by Outer Known. You know what I can't stand? I can't stand when companies that aren't really committed to the planet do one-off things to pretend like somehow they've been green all along. That's called greenwashing. Outer Known, though, well, they're the first brand founded on a total commitment to sustainability. Outer Known offers extremely comfortable and stylish men's and women's clothing. Every product they make has a planet-first mentality, meaning materials are environmentally friendly and the factories they work with provide safe working conditions and fair living wages for all workers. But here's the thing. You don't buy clothes to help the planet. Well, you do, actually. But you buy clothes because they're comfortable. They look great. And Outer Known's got you there. The blanket shirt, for example. Coziest shirt of all time, available for the whole family. SEA jeans, soft, comfortable, and guaranteed for life. And, well, don't forget the Crooked Media Holiday Jackets, which were a hit, and they were an instant staple for the whole Crooked office. Every Outer Known product is comfortable, breathable, and fits great. Designed to make you look and feel great and sustainably made for a better planet. Go to OuterKnown.com slash America today and you'll get 25% off your first order. That's OuterKnown.com slash America, spelled O-U-T-E-R-K-N-O-W-N.com slash America to receive the 25% off discount code. Check them out today, OuterKnown.com slash America, and don't forget to use the promo code on the page for 25% off. This episode is brought to you by Karayuma, the cool sustainable sneaker company made for life on and off the board. Warmer days, well, they're finally here, and you need a staple shoe to carry you through the summer and beyond. When it comes to days spent in the sunshine and on your feet, Karyuma's got you covered with effortless style, unmatched comfort, and premium quality. Worn by celebrities like Ashton Kutcher and praised by publications like Vogue and GQ, these are a cult fave. Look, I love my Akka Lowe's in Pantone Blue. And look, there's a version of an Akka for you. Akka is Karyuma's new school take on a timeless sneaker style. It's designed for everyday wear and with breathable organic cotton canvas in shades like green, off-white, rose, and Pantone blue, it's the perfect pair to prep for summer. They're sure to have a perfect color for you. We've loved the lace-up Akka for years, and now Karayuma recently launched canvas slip-ons. Made with organic cotton and natural rubber outsole, this easy-to-wear style provides a timeless look with incredible comfort and ease. It's everything you love about the Akka, now without the laces. Karayuma is always keeping it fresh with epic collaborations with brands like Deus, Avatar, and Pantone. There's something to love for everyone and sure to be shoes you'll never get bored of. For me, it was the Pantone and the Aka for me. Karyuma is B Corp certified and has a dedicated reforestation program based in the Brazilian rainforest. Their co-founders, David and Fernando, both grew up there, so this project is especially close to home. For every pair sold, Karyuma plants two trees, and they've already planted over two million trees to date. Karyuma doesn't just talk about being green. It's baked into their entire business ethos. They ship all their sneakers free and fast in the USA and offer worldwide shipping and 60-day free returns. They deliver right to your front door using single-box recycled packaging. And for a limited time, America Dissected listeners can get an exclusive 15% off your pair of Karyuma sneakers. Go to cariuma.com slash ad15 to get 15% off. That's cariuma.com slash ad15 for 15% off only for a limited time. Couple questions. Twenty years on from the Women's Health Initiative, um, how have have doctors become a bit more nuanced in treating menopause? I mean, not in my experience. I mean, at the risk of um, tooting the New York Times's um, horn, <laughs> I cannot tell you how many doctors have told me that this this article has changed the conversation. I mean, 
many doctors literally are giving it out in their office or they're like sort of, they have the QR code posted in their OBGYNs I'm talking about. But um, women are coming to them and saying, did you see that New York Times Magazine article? Like, I, I, I mean... I cannot tell like their like just as their phones were ringing off the hook when the WHI study came out and suggested that hormones were unsafe for women. Um, you know, doctors are telling me that their practices are OBGYNs that their practices have been like like crazy busy lately because women want to talk about this. Women who were too shy to bring it up or who felt awkward or who brought it up and felt like the doctor kind of hinted it wasn't a great idea. Now they really Mm. want to hash it out. And it's not to say that this article suggested to them, like, you should definitely be on menopausal hormone therapy because I think we made it clear in this article um, that it requires a conversation and it's not for everyone. It might, it might not be for you if you're over 60 and you haven't started and you're at high risk for breast cancer. Or if you've had breast cancer, it's, pro- it's almost certainly not right for you. But women want to have the conversations now with their doctors. And that's, I think it's inspired a lot of, um, a lot of, a lot of discussion and a lot of appointments. It, it's rare that you actually get to feel like something you publish moves the needle on the conversation. I, I am hearing from OBGYNs that, that it has moved the needle on the conversation. I was going to say, you got to give yourself your flowers here. Uh, it's not <laughs> just the New York Times. I mean, it's, um, if it weren't what I was hearing so often, I would not say it. But from my article, it was clear that I was like a little bit, I had kind of an awkward experience with my own OB and I switched. Mm-hmm. And when I went in, it was almost like they were so lovely, but even like, even the, uh, even the assistant who worked there was, you know, commenting on how much it had affected the practice. And there was a, mm. like a lot of excitement. And for some OBGYNs, the effort of overcoming the reservations that women have about menopausal hormone therapy because of years of bad press, the effort was more than they could put in with each patient, even though they often mm-hmm. thought that these women should consider it. So there are many OBs who I think think this makes their job much easier because they want women to consider this as an option. Mm. But there was so much um, hesitation because of just misinformation, just flat out misinformation that um, it, it takes a long time to actually unpack, well, what is the risk? And like, well, we're using different formulations now. Are they safer than the ones that were used in the WHI? Well, they look safer from tons of observational studies, but they're not randomized controlled trials, so the research isn't as good. You know, these things are complicated. And, you know, I wish that doctors could say to women, we have three 10-year-long randomized controlled trials that all confirm that menopausal hormone therapy is, you know, flat-out safe. Um, There's lots of reasons to think that the new formulations are safer based on really good observational studies, and that is particularly that the issue is not that the estrogen was causing um, whatever adverse health effects they were seeing, but that it was the progestin because the women who were on estrogen alone had better health outcomes than placebo, Mm -hmm. right? So clearly it seems likely that it was really the progestin that was causing the health problems. So do we have a better, safer formulation now um, in micronized progesterone? A lot of observational um, research suggests yes, but you as a doctor know that's not quite as good as a randomized control trial. Yeah. Do you know of any studies in the works? Um, Randomized control trials? Mm -hmm. No. Um, not, mm. not for that. Um, not that would, that would be as exhaustive as certainly what the WH diet. I mean, the WHI study, which was also studying things like our low-fat diets healthier for women, our vitamins. You know, do they improve outcomes? It was like a billion-dollar project at the end of yeah. the day. It was, in fact, one person told me it was so big that some hospitals actually it was the first time that they integrated like um, 
networked computer systems because mm-hmm. they had to, to do that in order to be part of this massive project. Wow. I mean, you wouldn't need a study that big. And to be fair, a lot's changed in the last 20 years. We can get much better inference from smaller studies than we could in the past. Mm. So, I, you know, NIH, if you're listening, uh, this this might be um, something to fund somebody to do. I want to ask you, going back to that trip that you took with your uh, friends, if you had taken that trip after you reported your article, what would the conversation have been? I think there would have been a lot less agita over whether or not to go on menopausal hormone therapy because we all knew it existed, but we all weren't sure whether it was like a good idea. It seemed like it probably wasn't a good idea. I have one friend who um, you know, had really, really heavy, heavy bleeding during perimenopause, so much so that she had to miss work at times. Mm. This was a friend on the trip with me. And um, some of the women who were away that weekend were already on menopausal hormone therapy, one of whom had gone into um, menopause very early. But none of us felt like in a position to be like, this is ridiculous. Just go on the menopausal hormone therapy. It's important and it's safe. And you can also go off of it in a couple of years and there will be no harm. I mean, they didn't even see any increased risk in breast cancer until after five years. It's not that menopausal hormone therapy is the answer for everyone, but we didn't even know how to think about it during that conversation. So I, I think that's the main thing is the idea that there is recourse. And this friend eventually did make that choice. But many, many months of suffering went by, you know, that of needless suffering um, before she did. And it pains me to think about that. I actually have a lot of, I, I get very upset when I think about the collective amount of suffering over the past 20 years that women endured simply because of misinformation that snowballed and snowballed and took on a life of its own and became Mm. kind of like the sort of general accepted dogma that like there was something fishy about this particular um, treatment. And I mean, if you read the comments to the New York Times Magazine article, there are women who say, I think that my marriage ended over how depressed I got. Um, I took mm. myself out of the workforce because I could not function. My my word recall, my memory, my general energy just plummeted. I mean, it's really, really deeply, deeply sad how much suffering happened um, for, you know, in, in, the, in the WHI's defense, probably women in their 70s shouldn't start menopausal hormone therapy. That's, you know, that's not a good idea. And, and women were doing that, not all the time, but it was something that doctors did with some regularity. So, it was, you know, there was a lot of important information that obviously came from this, um, from this trial. But collectively, when you consider the amount of suffering, you know, even just women thinking that they were having autoimmune diseases because they were suffering joint pain and not knowing that it mm. could be remedied by hormones or neurologists um, never considering that, well, you know, are, you're 52. Like, is, is it possible that this could be related to, to menopause? It's just, oh, it is very upsetting, I have to say. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you writing on it and, um, and igniting a conversation about the therapy that is available. Uh, our guest today was Susan Dominus. She's a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine and author of a groundbreaking new article, Rethinking uh, How We Treat menopause. Thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks. I really enjoyed hearing what you had to say. It was a pleasure to hear your thoughts. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. This winter saw a major bump in a number of common respiratory viruses. 
One of them was RSV. But next winter, for the first time, there'll be an RSV vaccine available. The vaccine is available for adults age 60 and older, one of the group's hardest hit by the virus, which makes sense. Given the fact that while kids are the most likely to transmit RSV, seniors are most likely to die of it. It's unquestionably good news that we have a vaccine for RSV for seniors. I worry, well, it's about uptake. Only about 40% of seniors have had the shingles vaccine, which prevents varicella zoster, the virus responsible for chickenpox that hangs out in the nerve roots, only to reappear after your immune system weakens in older age as shingles. And the disinformation around the COVID vaccines throughout the pandemic, well, it's primed folks against new vaccines in ways that may prevent seniors from taking these too. Notice how I said during the pandemic? Well, according to the WHO, the COVID global health emergency is officially over. It ended last Friday. And the U.S. public health emergency is set to sunset this Thursday. First, let me explain what ending a global public health emergency actually means. It means that the WHO has determined that the number of cases is no longer more than we expect, though it remains high. That there's no way to stop cross-border transmission and therefore that we no longer need coordinated international response. Look, whether you want those things to be true or not, they are particularly as cases, hospitalizations, and deaths are at an all-time low. But there's something more here I want you to understand. It does not mean that COVID is gone. In fact, COVID is going to continue to evolve, and we're going to continue to have to evolve with it, and we're likely to see new waves, particularly in the fall, every year. But I want to step back. And look, I don't mean to beat a dead horse. To be honest, I don't know why people beat horses in the first place, but you get what I'm saying. There is a gigantic lesson, particularly for those of us in the United States on this pandemic. For three years, every single public health agency around the world experienced the deepest and broadest mobilization in its history. It meant that the federal government showed what was possible. More people had health care than ever before. We invested billions in basic science, public health program implementation, and public health awareness. And though here in the U.S. we still lost over a million people, public health, from distancing to masking to vaccines to testing to treatment, saved millions more. Don't get me wrong, there are parts of the pandemic I never want to go back to, but the part that had government investing in the basic healthcare resources that for so long in this country we were told we couldn't afford, that we were told could not be done, well, they were. To draw all that down begs the question, what was the real emergency? Look, a super transmissible, super deadly virus spreading all over the country is certainly an emergency unto itself. But isn't millions of people dying because they don't have basic healthcare an emergency too? or the shocking level of homelessness, poverty, and mental illness, or our failure to invest in basic prevention across our communities. So while the COVID emergency may be ending, the public health emergency in this country is not. And I think we all ought to be asking what it'll take for us to address all of those other causes of death too. On that note, a new report from the CDC showed that while opioid overdose jumped across the board in the first year of the pandemic, it jumped particularly highly among Black Americans among whom overdose attributable to fentanyl accounted for the highest increase in overall overdose deaths. I raise this because since the beginning of the opioid crisis, it's been characterized as a disease of low-income rural white folks, and that's meant that we've moved the bulk of our available resources into those communities to tackle it. But as with almost all diseases, they follow poverty and marginalization. And it's always only been a matter of time until structural racism opened the floodgates of our national opioid crisis into predominantly black communities. But it's not just substance use, it's about treatment too. And that's where racism has also reared its ugly head. It's about access to substance use treatment. Because black Americans are far less likely to access buprenorphine, a life-saving medication that reduces the risk of overdose, owing to a constellation of factors, including, well, frank racism among doctors who prescribe it. And the exact lack of healthcare at baseline in this country I just talked about. 
Meanwhile, rather than invest in harm reduction that actually saves lives, conservatives are too busy blaming the border for our fentanyl crisis. Because, well, fentanyl can be manufactured nearly everywhere. But isn't it convenient to blame the border, meaning immigrants, on this? <laughs> well, if you're conservative, you bet it is. So let's be clear about something. You could seal the border tomorrow, and it would do absolutely nothing for the millions of Americans currently living with substance use disorder. So can we please stop demagoguing brown folks over this? That's it for today. On your way out, don't forget to rate and review. It really does go a long way. And if you love the show and want to rep us, I hope you'll drop by the Crooked Store for some American Dissected merch. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producers are Tara Terpstra and M.A. Frank. Vasily Fitopoulos mixes and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz. Our theme song is by Takao Sazawa and Alex Uguera. Our executive producers are Leo Duran, Sarah Geismer, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. This show is for general information and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to provide specific healthcare or medical advice and should not be construed as providing healthcare or medical advice. Please consult your physician with any questions related to your own health. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the host and his guests and do not necessarily represent the view and opinion of Wayne County, Michigan or its Department of Health, Human and Veteran Services.